That is what Exodus 32, 7 through 14 says. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that, I may, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with a great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Exodus 32, missing God. Missing God. I just got to be up front with you. We're going to talk about idolatry today. Not adultery. Some of you got a little intense. Like, well, no, idolatry, you're fine. Adultery is next week. <laughs> idolatry. And when we hear idolatry, you say, oh, we're going to talk about idolatry. Oh, that's great, because I don't struggle with worshiping idols. Buckle on. It's, uh, turns out you do. Now, let me show you how. Monday night football. Now, that may not be your idol. <laughs> it wasn't a game somebody night were good, it was. But anyway, Monday night football, just, just an example of this. They have this new thing. ESPN added this new thing, a sideline reporter. You say, well, sideline reporter isn't new. This is new. Uh, this, uh, this reporter is in a booth that's on a crane. So he's like in this cart thing that's up in the air. And this thing moves back and forth so he can be right involved. And, and every now and then they'll switch over to, to this analyst and he'll give his point of view on what's going on in the game because he can sort of hear the players on the sidelines. It's kind of right there. It's great. Great access. It's, and, and what they, they've discovered, ESPN, is, is actually fans watching uh, this guy on TV, they love it. So they love the point of view. They love his insight and his analysis. Uh, the, the analysis he gives of the game, they love the perspective of having a guy on the field. What they, people who don't like this guy is people who paid for second row tickets at the field because this crane is always at the line of scrimmage. If you don't know what the line of scrimmage is, you just have to Google it on your phone. I can't explain football. It's just not time for it. It's, so that you, you paid 400 bucks to sit at the 50-yard line, second row in an NFL, and then this guy parks his crane in front of you. And so what ESPN did, because they got a bunch of complaints, you know what they did? They mounted a TV on the back of that crane. 
So when he's in front of you, you're seeing what everybody is seeing at home who just is paying for cable. Right? What does this have to do with anything? You've got the real thing that's out there. Monday Night Football, and you paid money to see it. And then in front of this is this thing that's blocking you, and it's a cheap imitation. Now, in that moment, you're saying, well, of course, I wouldn't want to watch the football game on the TV if I was there. Well, here's the thing. That's exactly what happens to us. We will, we will put up with cheap imitations. We're going to see this in the lives of the people of Israel, and I don't want to pull any punches. I want you to be able to see by the end of the time, this is a normal thing for us to do. It's a normal default position of the human heart is to be willing to put up with a cheap imitation of what God offers and we end up missing God himself. And the sooner that we're able to grapple with that and wrestle with that, the better we can set aside the cheap imitations and instead seek the Lord himself. Missing God. First thing we do, verses 1 through 6, Exodus 32, missing God because we are blind to his presence. We are blind to his presence. It turns out when God's not around, we act like ourselves, and when he shows up, we act the way we think he ought to. How do we know this? There's a TV show on, and it's called What Would You Do? Have you seen this show? So the guy sets up a scenario in like a restaurant, and what he'll do is he'll have a, uh, say, an adult and a kid, and the kid will do something wrong, and the, guy, and the adult will start screaming at the kid, like in a real abusive way. And the question for the show is, will the patron, other patrons of the, of the restaurant say anything? Right? And, and then when somebody like sticks up for the victim in that, then all the cameras come out and say, oh, look, you, you stuck up for him. Then you have other people, they go and they start help, harping on the kid too. Yeah, you should listen to your parent. Yeah, so the question is, what would you do? It turns out we act different when we're on live TV. And once the cameras come out, we're like, oh, okay, we act different. And this is what's happening to the people of Israel. They have missed that God is present with them, and their actions reveal they think God is on vacation. Look at verse uh, 1 of Exodus 32. The people saw that Moses was delayed in coming down the mountain. People of Israel were at the foot of the mountain. Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, having a conversation with God and receiving from God the covenant, the promise of God. It took a long time. It took 40 days. It was a long time in coming, and so the people go to Aaron, the priest, Moses' brother, and say, listen, we don't know what's going on with Moses. He went up on Volcano Mountain, and we think he's probably dead. What we need is a God we can worship. So they go to Aaron, and he says, make for us gods who will go before us. So Aaron tells them, take off your rings, throw them onto a tarp, and he turns their gold earrings and jewelry into a... Uh, idol that looks like a calf. Probably what it was was a wooden cow that they then covered with gold to look like a calf. So he took their earrings off and he took their arm bracelets off and, and they made a calf that they could worship. And this is what he says down in verse 4. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar, and he said, Tomorrow we will have a feast. That's a worship festival. And they rose up the next day, and they had their festival, and the people sat down, and they ate, and they drank, and then they had a bit of a party. Moses is gone for 40 days. 
God, as far as their minds are concerned, is absent. He's history. We don't know what's going on. God isn't here. We need a God, so we will make a God of our own making. And so they cast an idol. And what we have to understand about this idol, they weren't necessarily abandoning the idea of God. What they needed was something to show them God was physically there. So on the one hand, they were doing what they shouldn't have been doing, creating an idol. On the other hand, what they're probably doing is saying, well, we're just going to create something that looks like God, as far as we can tell. I don't know how they came up with cow. Probably it was because of their, their time in Egypt. And so we're going to create up. Now, we're still worshiping God in some sense, but we're going to ascribe our worship to this idol, knowing that it represents God or gods. We need a God we can see. We need a God we can talk to. We need a God that is tangible. We need a God that we can, look, there he is. There he is up on that shelf, that golden calf. We know he's here. How do we know God is here? Nobody stole the cow. We're, we miss God because we're blind to his presence. Now, God hadn't gone anywhere. He was right up on the mountain with Moses, but that wasn't tangible for them. They couldn't see him. They couldn't talk to him. All they could see was the smoke and the lightning. As far as they were concerned, Moses was now dead. They needed someone they could, they could connect with. This God, I could walk up to him and pet him on the head if I wanted. He's right there. I know where he is. He is tangible. He is meaningful. There's no mystery to it. I prayed to it, I know he heard me. He's right there. Of course he heard me. There's no question about it whatsoever. And this is what we, what we do because we want to have a tangible, meaningful encounter with God himself. And why don't we have a tangible, meaningful encounter with God? What's the problem? We abandoned him. We said we want to do it our way. We sinned against him. We said, God, you've got some great ideas. I think mine are better. My ideas are better because it means my life gets to be lived my way. And the result of sin is it separates us from God. And we say we are separated from God, and then we go, where's God? So he didn't go anywhere. We walked away. And now we yearn in our hearts for a meaningful, tangible God that we can worship in person. And it frustrates that God isn't that, but he the, re the reason for that is because we walked away from him. We want God who is predictable, God who is real, God who is, in fact, practical. God that when we pray to him, he does what we need done. Wouldn't you like that if every time you prayed for something, it just got done? God, I need a few bucks. And it just shows up. God, I need my car to work. And it just starts. You don't even have battery in it. It's a miracle every day. You took the battery out. Every day, it's a miracle the thing starts. I need a job, and jobs just flow in. I get to pick for my jobs. I need my family to act in such a way that everything they do is precisely the way in which I would do it, without me having to tell them how I want to do it. I mean, that's precisely what we want, right? The whole world geared around how it ought to be, right? By definition, that makes you God of the universe. And we want God to finally figure out we are God of the universe. And that's what the people of Israel wanted. God has not got it into his head yet. We want things a particular way. We want our food on schedule. We want our promised land close. And we always want to have water. 
He said, well, these are reasonable demands. And what God was saying throughout their journey through the wilderness, I will provide them, though, on my schedule. We want a God who is practical, a God who is predictable, a God who is measurable. He shows up here. He goes on vacation here so I can do what I want. I, I know exactly what he's doing, and so I can script my life. And I want a God who is reasonable. I just want a God who merely expects me to live a somewhat moral life, but makes no demands whatsoever outside of that. Turns out God is none of those things, and so the most convenient way to fix that solution problem is to create our own God. And that's precisely what the people of Israel did. They want a God that they could see and touch and feel, and it works every time. It's up there, so let's read it. Psalm 106, 19 through 20. Psalm 106 was written by Moses, and it just so happens a few verses here in Psalms 106, we're going to refer to it a couple of times. He wrote about this time where they made this calf. Psalms 106, 19 through 20, here's what it says. They made a calf in Horeb, that's the location they were, and they worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. It's supposed to make fun of them. Because that's what they exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. Here's the point. One of the points he's making, he's making several, is this. We want to be able to worship God. It is a part of being human to want to worship. We want to worship. But what we want is for worship our life of knowing God to be personally satisfying, personally gratifying, personally meaningful, personally noteworthy. I should be able to write in my journal every single day that my life with God is a new high of personal significance and satisfaction because I want everything about my relationship with God to be designed to meet my personal desires for meaning and satisfaction. And so... Uh, a calf does this. They worshiped a metal image because they could design worship to make sure that it met their needs and their satisfaction. They exchanged the glory of God for an ox because the glory of God is unpredictable. Whereas an ox that's made out of gold will sit down on the shelf. Look back at Exodus 32.9. And by 32.9, I mean 32.6. They rose up early the next morning. They offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. So this was a typical festival. In fact, to some degree, they're following the outline of the law. What they're doing is taking what they knew God would want, burnt offerings and sacrifice offerings and fellowship offerings, and they're now offering it to this cow. So they're taking their worship of God and altering it so that the focus of their worship is not on the object of their worship, God. The focus of their worship is on themselves. Let's make sure our worship satisfies me. It's a meal that I want to eat. It's people I want to spend time with. And then they rose up and had a party. The DJ came out. Music, dancing, games, and yes, some bad stuff. Yes, it got a little rowdy. So everything about this was designed for them to come in and receive from God what they wanted, that which is going to satisfy their needs and their wants. The God of the universe 
is instead asking us to worship him and have the focus of our worship not be our own hearts, but instead actually to be him. The question in our relationship with God is this, not whether our relationship with God is personally significant. The question in our relationship with God is this, is it significant to him? Is he the focus of our relationship? Or is my question about my relationship with God is this, what has he done for me today? How has he showed up for me today? Is God personally satisfying? We miss God because we're blind to the fact that he is present. And if God were to show up present and we saw an experience, we would not be thinking about ourselves. We would be encountering the most glorious and beautiful thing we've ever seen. We miss God because we're blind to his presence. And so we create stuff which we can see. One last comment, and then we'll move on to the next section. We want a redeemer we can see, even if that redeemer is an ox. We want a redeemer we can see, even if that redeemer is less glorious than the God of the universe. A couple of things we put in that spot. Money, stuff, family, work, because that stuff fixes stuff. It gets it done. Having enough money gets it done. Having enough stuff gets it done. God is very nice, but he doesn't show up and pay bills. I can't write God on the bottom of a medical bill. I mean, you can. It's still going to be due. I'm just telling you, you can try it, but it's not. They're still going to want the money. And so God is terribly frustrating because money on the one hand, it gets it done. Isn't it funny? When you pay a medical bill, they actually consider it paid. Have you noticed that? So, yes, you, when you pay your bills, they're paid. But if you write God on it, they, they send it back to you and say, uh, that's how nice for you. So now send us the money. And we say, well, that's not how I treat God. No, this is very hard for us because God is great. But what is it? But does he get it done? And it's the same struggle the people of Israel were having 40 days and 40 nights. Where is God? He's not getting it handled. We don't know what's up. Build a cow. He gets it done. It's handled. The problem is what that reveals is a blindness to God's presence. We think just because the stuff we want handled isn't handled, we think God must be gone. It could just be that we've got our eyes on the wrong set of priorities. Missing God, we're blind to his presence. Okay, look at Exodus 7, 32, 7 through 14. There's two symptoms of blindness, and then we'll look at this other uh, section. Two symptoms of it. Number one, either we think his holiness is achievable, that means we can be good enough to have a relationship with God, or his holiness is harmless, meaning I can't be as good as God, uh, but he's not dangerous. So missing God, being blind to God, means usually either I think I can be good enough to know him or he's better than me, but not that much better. And so he's harmless. The result is this, we're unimpressed with his holiness. M missing God, we're unimpressed with his holiness. Exodus 32, verse 7, we read it. Mos Lord says to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought out, out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. You've all had that phone call. You're at work, you're at the grocery store, whatever it is, get your phone call from your spouse. Guess what your son did? Okay, you notice that? 
it's your son when they're acting like you. That's the connection there. You know, it's my son when, when everything's going swimmingly. This, and this is what God is doing to Moses. He's saying, listen, your people are they're blowing it. Nice job, Moses. They have turned quickly. I have brought them out of Egypt. This is just a few months, maybe two or three months after coming out of Egypt, after the ten plagues, after walking through the Red Sea, after getting the manna, after getting water out of a rock. Just a few months later, they've already built an idol, and they're worshiping it. And God says this. Let me alone that I may consume them. I am going to destroy them. I am going to make a great nation instead out of you, Moses. God's holiness is dangerous. And we're missing God when we're unimpressed with His holiness. The problem with understanding God's holiness is this. For us to understand God's holiness is very difficult because we don't have a frame of reference for it. So this is a silly illustration, but this is how I think of it. Understanding God's holiness is like describing the color blue to someone who has been blind since birth. So someone's been blind their entire life, and then you want to describe to them the color blue. How are you going to do that? Are you going to say, well, blue is kind of, it looks like what cold would look like. That, that seems like a good way. It looks like it looks like what the sky is. Okay, well, okay, the sky doesn't work. It looks like cold would look at. Then we realize we only associate the blue with cold because we've associated with it over time because we see it. And it may not be an actual association. So how do you describe blue to the unseen? How do you describe holiness of God to the unholy, to those who have abandoned holiness? And so what we tend to do is minimize this holiness. But here in, in this story, we are confronted with God's holiness. If they will abandon me, they have walked away from life. They have walked away from God who is the source of life. And God's holiness is not compromising. God's holiness is not pragmatic, saying, I'll just figure it out and we'll make it work. We'll come up with a deal. God is saying, no, my holiness requires holiness. We're missing God when we are unimpressed with His holiness. The idol of a cow seems somewhat reasonable. To worship the cow, you do have to show up for cow worship time. You do have to make a sacrifice. You do have to make an offering. You do have to show up and do the thing. That seems reasonable. We can show up for cow worship time. It doesn't seem out of line. I mean, we're out in the desert anyway. What else do we have going on, right? So the cow seems somewhat reasonable. God, on the other hand, he seems a little high-strung and overbearing. I mean, you break one little rule and you're cast out of the camp. You have to walk around yelling unclean. You, you mess one little thing up and he's going to smote you. The cow seems very reasonable. So what we're going to do is minimize God's holiness and worship a cow who just has a little bit more reasonable demands. Let me in, let you in on something here. Look at the end of this passage. God says this in verse 14. The Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of when bringing on, uh, excuse me, the disaster he had spoken of bringing on his people. Verse 14, the Lord relented. So one thing we can say, he is unreasonable because he never should have relented. God is being unreasonable because he should have brought judgment. 
What was the reason God didn't bring judgment? Simply because Moses intervened on behalf of the people and reminded God of his covenants. He said, God, you have made a promise. You'll take them to the promised land. And God, you're, you're forgiving God. And God relented his judgment on them because Moses appealed to God based on God's nature. He knows that coming to God and asking him to compromise is not going to do it. He can't come to God and say, well, God, your holiness is a little strict. How about if we just lower the bar a little bit? He doesn't do that. He simply says, God, you're right, but you made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you need to fulfill that covenant. And secondly, God, don't allow the Egyptians to speak poorly of you. And so God relents. The people are miss, are unimpressed with God's holiness. Look at Psalm 106, verse 23. It's up on the screen there. This is what Moses said about it over in Psalms. Therefore, he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Moses appeals to God. He stands in the gap, appeals to God on behalf of the people. And it was because Moses stood in between God and the people that God turned away his wrath from destroying the people. Unseen Moses, unseen he redeems them and saves them. Let me put it this way, the way we might say it in a New Testament verse in 1 Corinthians. While they were still sinning, Moses prayed for them. Because Moses hadn't come down the mountain yet, had he? So while they were still having their festival, I'm being polite, Moses was up on the mountain saying, God, forgive them. Moses didn't appeal to God and say, God, lower your standards. Why don't you just accept people who do this? What he does instead is say, God, you are a God who redeemed these people out of Egypt. They were sinners back then. Guess what? They still are. Redeem them. And God hears Moses' prayer while they are still sinning, and God relents from his judgment. They're missing God because they are unimpressed with his holiness. If God's holiness is something we can achieve, then we don't need Jesus to stand in the breach for us. If God's holiness is something you and I can accomplish, what do we need Jesus for? If we can be good enough to get God, why in the world did we take communion today? You see what I'm saying? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The point is this. The reason we need Jesus is because God is holy. Another way we can put it is this. As long as I lower God's holiness standards, it lowers what Christ had to do for me. The more I understand how holy God is, and the more I understand how not holy I am, the more I appreciate what Jesus did. The holier, more holy? I'm not a grammarian. The more holier that God is, you're welcome. All the teachers, your heads just exploded. The holier God is, which is beyond my comprehension, the better I am willing to grapple with my not holiness, the more I look at Jesus and say, oh man, thank you. If you don't appreciate what Christ did for you, and that comes and goes in the Christian life, it generally isn't because God isn't awesome. Generally, it's because I think I am. 
We want to live our Christian life to get to a point where we don't need Jesus anymore. When what the Bible actually does for us is the closer we get to God, the more we realize we need Jesus again. We miss God when we're unimpressed with his holiness and then we settle for cheap substitutes. If God's holiness doesn't impress sinners, how about God's promises? Look at Exodus 15, 32, 15 through 29. We're going to end on this section. Missing God because they were unrestrained by his promises. On the one hand, you would think maybe God's holiness on the mountain would keep them from sinning. It didn't. Maybe God's good promises would keep them from sinning. I had a professor once. I was over at his home because he was an uncle to my roommate, and he was writing a book he'd been commissioned to write. And he came out from working on his typewriter. Of course, this is a long time ago. Sorry. And he said, oh, Dr. Benware, you're almost done with your book. He said, I just finished chapter. It was Thanksgiving. We were over at his house, and so he came out and was getting a piece of pie. And he said, guys, you need to understand this. We're college students. This is how I do it. I finish a chapter, I get a piece of pie. That's how it rolls. So this is how you do it. You, you reward yourself. You set a goal. When you finish your goal, you get a piece of pie. I mean, it's Thanksgiving. There's pie for days in the, in the refrigerator, right? It could be something else. Like get up on Saturday morning. Hey, if I get these chores down, I'll give myself some ice cream, right? So we, that's what we say. Okay, if I get up in the morning, if I get the car washed and do the lawn, I'll give myself some ice cream out of the freezer, right? And then you start thinking about it. You know what? I bet you that would really provide the energy I need to get the car washed and get the lawn done. I better just have a bit of ice cream to get things rolling. Kind of let me know what's ahead, okay? One thing leads to another. We've got an empty carton of ice cream and we're laying in the kitchen floor and we can't move, right? And the chores aren't going to get done. So we think if, if we have these good promises from God, certainly it's going to lead us to abandon all other good things and pursue God alone. And it turns out, Silly illustration. It doesn't work that way. And it didn't work that way uh, for the people either. Look at verse 15. Moses turned and went down the mountain. He had the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. The tablets were written on both sides, on the front and on the back. They were written. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the handwriting of God himself. So on these tablets certainly were the Ten Commandments. But we must understand the covenant of God is, is much bigger than just a set of rules. What this was was this. You have the distinct privilege of having a relationship with the God of the universe, and God is merely saying this is how that relationship needs to function. God is just simply saying, listen, you get to have a relationship with me. I will provide the means for you to relate to me, and I'm going to show you how that relationship functions. And see, you're not offended by that in any other relationship in your life. Your, mar your, your marriage, your boss, your friends, all of them, you, you sort of figure out how the relationship functions. And God has just come to them, and you sort of define the relationship. Here's how this is going to roll. You want a relationship with the God of the universe? You can have it, and here's the terms of that relationship. And all of that covenant did was define for them how they enjoy the benefits and blessing of relationship with God which was their crop would never fail, they would never be invaded, they would live in homes they did not build, eat from vineyards they did not plant, and drink from cisterns they did not dig. That's a, ver that's a verse somewhere. It's a really good covenant. All of the benefits of having relationship with God. So God makes all of these promises, he offers his presence, and he offers his power, and what do they do? Have a party. 
a party to celebrate some other god who will allow them to have benefits, they hope, without all these rules. Oh, my lands, are you serious? Get over yourself, really. I, we, I want to have the benefits of a God who does everything I want without him actually having an idea of what a relationship looks like. And see, in religious terms, we understand, well, I think God's kind of overbearing. Okay, so try it. Okay, if you're married, do this. Go to your spouse after church. Say, you know what? I want to be married, and I want to do whatever I want. I might be home sometimes. Most of the time, I'm not. Just going to be honest. Want a relationship on the side. It's just how I'm going to do it. I mean, I'm afraid to ask even in this. Are you okay with that? No, all of us, if we have a relationship, we're going to have a relationship that honors and uh, values the other person in that relationship with us. And all God is doing is coming and saying, listen, I am a personal God, and I have, this is how you relate to me. Just like you have in any other relationship within your life. And what the people have said, boy, we don't like you. So we're going to create a God of our own that we like, and we will serve him. Because this idol sort of gets to it, gets us. He relates. The idol is relatable. The idol is here. The idol is present. The idol in some way doesn't offer me anything, but on the other hand, it requires nothing. Idols always affirm how we are right now in this moment. They're missing God because God's promises were made to them and God's promises, instead of restraining their fallen nature to serve the holy and present God, they said, no, we, we want to embrace our fallen nature and we will find a God that affirms how I am today. I don't want to be expected to relate to you, God, based on who you are. I want you, God, to relate to me based on how I am. And so we create an idol of our own making. I don't know how to say this nice. Well, I don't think it's mean. It just can come across a little bit cold. So if it comes off cold and heartless, it's because Jeff wrote it. <laughs> if it comes off really nice and warm, then Seth did. Um, I certainly had nothing to do with it. We'll just say that. Here's what God wants. He wants us to get him. He wants us to get him. We want an idol that gets us. He wants us to relate to him. God wants us to seek him. God wants us to be present with him. God wants us to affirm who he is. And what we want in false worship is for God to get me and God to affirm me how I am right now and God to make no requirements in relationship between me and him. If he doesn't get me that way, I'll make a God of my own choosing. We miss God because we're unrestrained by his promises because we think his promises are primarily focused on us when in fact, everything about our relationship with him is not focused on us. Instead, it is focused on him. This is a shock to many of us. The center of the universe is not us. The center of the universe is God himself. And everything about him making himself known to us is designed to get ourselves off of worshiping ourselves and to worship him instead. Because ultimately, that golden calf up on the shelf is not a golden calf. It's just a picture of us. 
isn't it? That's really all it is. They were just too embarrassed to make a picture of uh, an idol of themselves. But at the end of the day, that's what the idol is. We look up and we see God is God of the universe and that drives us nuts. Because that's the job I want. And God says, no, no, no. It's going to work better for you if you recognize I am God of the universe. And when you come to me on those terms, you're going to find satisfaction in me alone. Look at Psalm 106, 21 to 22. Last psalm, and then we'll just have a couple of questions, and then we'll close. Psalm 106, 21 and 22. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, that's the land of Egypt, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. God had done all these powerful works to bring himself glory. They received benefit by God seeking his own glory, and they forgot all of those things because once they got out into the wilderness, they realized the glory of God will not always bring immediate comfort and benefit. They were forgetful of the power of God in Egypt. They were forgetful that his purpose was his glory primarily. How does God receive the most glory? It's when we worship him according to his ways through thick and thin, good and bad, when we don't miss God. Okay, here, just review three things. Missing God because we're blind to his presence. If you are a believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit in you, according to the Bible. When does the Holy Spirit go on vacation? He doesn't. He is always with us, no matter what we're doing. He's with us. When we're blind to God's presence, we'll act in any way we see fit. We're unimpressed by his holiness. We're in, we think God is just sort of cool with it. But if God is just sort of cool with how we are, why in the world did he die on the cross? He died on the cross because he needed a substitute to take our sin because he wasn't cool with our sin. It needed to be paid for. Finally, we miss God because we're unrestrained by his promises. We enjoy God's benefits, but we wish his entire plan was focused on our comfort. Are you ready? Three questions. We're going to close with this. No answer. Okay, so I'll assume you're not ready. We're doing it anyway. Three questions. Is God near? It's a trick question. It's the wrong question. The better question is, is am I? The question is not, is God near? The question is, am I? The question is, do I seek the Lord? Second question, you've asked this before, does God hear? Does God hear? Seek him in prayer. Does, does God hear me? Better question, you're not going to like this. I'm just giving you a heads up. Are you ready? Why should he? Why should he hear? Am I good enough that God should hear my prayer? Third question. What does God offer? What does God offer? What is it he's bringing to the table? Better question. What do I offer? Am I acceptable? How'd you answer those questions? Do I seek him? No. I'm helping you. Am I good enough for God to hear my prayer? Are you kidding me? 
No, no, let's just be honest. No, I'm not good enough for God to hear my prayer. What, is, what do I offer God? Do I offer something to God that is acceptable? No. How did Paul describe his good deeds? Do you remember? What was that word? Oh, filthy rags. That's disgusting. Good news. While we were still sinners, Jesus stood in the breach. He stood in the gap and said, I'll take it, God. I will take the wrath that should go on them. They don't get it. I do. Jesus stood in the breach, and when we weren't good enough for him to hear our prayers, and when we weren't seeking him, we were seeking ourselves, and when we were absolutely not acceptable, Jesus stood while we were still sinners, before we saw it, before we even knew we had a need, he stood there and said, no, I I have this, Father. Put on me what should go on them. So the question becomes for you and I, really just two very, very easy questions. Number one, doesn't that sound really good? If it does, what it means is we just come to God with gratitude and thanks. Lord, thank you for saving me. May my life be lived as one who is saved. I don't need to get good enough for God to hear me because Jesus is good enough. I don't need to seek God because Jesus sought him for me. But I want my life to be an expression of devoted worship where I recognize God should have taken me out. He took Jesus out instead. And so I want my life to be a recognition that God saved someone as bad as me and as bad as you. Jesus is a better mediator even than Moses was. Okay, look at Exodus 32, 26. We're going to close with this verse. Moses went down to the camp. We didn't get time to spend on this, but he went down. He called out and he said, Who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered to him. Not the jeans designer. Levi was the, one of the families, the priests. What were those guys doing while Moses was up on their mountain? Well, one of two things. Either they were partying. That's the one I'm going to go with. Other one, which maybe is less bad but still awful, nothing, as in like not telling people to stop partying. So there's really two options. One of them is they were part of the party. My guess is they were the DJs. There's a reason for that. The Levites are also going to be the song leaders in the temple later. So they knew how to do the music thing. Or if they weren't partying with them, at the very least they said, oh my lands, that's out of control. Let's just go back to the tent and play pinochle or whatever they did. When what they should have done as priests is they should have intervened. They should have, they should have shut it down. So what we have here is people who have encountered the holiness of God and what we call it when they encounter the holiness of God and say, we were wrong, I want to live right. You know the fancy word we call that? Repentance. I'm right, you're wrong, God. I want my life to line up with your ways. And this is what the Bible calls us to do. When we encounter the presence of the living God and we have to determine, no, my ways should be God's ways, the question is not, is God going to figure out how to meet with me? The question is, am I willing now ready to repent and say, God, my ways lead me away from you. I want your ways. 
There's two ways to do that. One, if you're not a believer, you can repent and say, God, I am dead without you. Save me. If you're a believer, many of us today are going, there's a whole bunch of things about my life that do not reflect that God has changed me. I need those things changed. God, I repent. I want that in my past and not my future. Let's not miss God.